too many of us are inclined to not take a proactive approach in dealing with the medical side of our budget. And yeah, it makes up for me almost 10% of my general fund budget, pushing in the neighborhood of $10 million a year. And money that I'm spending on these benefits is money that I can't use to increase teacher pay or to provide other services to students to help them learn. So it's just really important to me to tackle those big items. Hello and welcome to the Payer Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Quinn Peterson, where it's my job to help business leaders of U.S. companies understand that they can take control of their employee medical benefits and reform the entire U.S. medical system as a side effect. I'm really excited to talk with my guest today, who is Zane Wolstenholm. Zane is the business administrator of the Ogden City School District. This is going to be a, a very interesting conversation, probably something that many of you listening would never have considered is how this all works in a public or government entity. Zane is just deeply familiar with all of this. He has been in the role of business administrator for over 30 years and has seen how this works over those 30 years. And he has taken some really interesting actions to really grapple with the the problem of the expense of employee medical benefits. Zane, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Good to be with you, Quinn. Thank you. Well, Zane, tell me a little bit about your history. How did you get into this business administration role? And what do you find to be the most rewarding thing about it? What gets you up in the morning? I have been, as you mentioned, doing this uh, since April of 1988, just uh, 33 years in my role as a business administrator. Prior to that time, I got a degree in accounting at the University of Utah, actually worked at the University of Utah in the two or three of their departments. And I was looking for an opportunity to move back home to Oakley, Utah, where I'm from. Uh, there aren't many accounting jobs available, and uh, one of my cousins actually told me about the role of business manager for South Summit School District, my alma mater. And the more I found out about that job, the more intriguing it seemed to me. I like the idea of being involved on the business side of the school district because there are a lot of different balls that you're juggling every day, and I like that that mix. Well, thanks, Zane. There are things at school districts that I'm sure nobody else in this audience listening to this podcast has to deal with, like probably student lunches. (laughs) So this brings me to a a question I'd love to have have you answer for us, which is, um, what is a business administrator? And what I'd like to get to here is, what would a business administrator be in a standard company? Probably a cross between a chief financial officer and a chief operating officer. You have the CEO in a traditional business, and that would be likened unto the superintendent of the school district. Uh, The business administrator is actually in Utah code called out that position. Board of Education of every school district in Utah, by law, appoints a superintendent and a business administrator. And there are two-year appointments. And so every couple of years, we go through a pretty rigorous evaluation process. So you basically operate on a two-year rolling contract 
So, uh, but that's the big difference that, you know, as a business administrator, you're involved in uh, making sure the, all the accounting is done appropriately, bills are being paid, that the people are being paid, benefits are being provided, and also that the facilities are in great shape and that students have a good learning environment. It's kind of the support of the instructional process is our role. Thanks for that. I I think that gives us a sense of just how your position sees so many places that require resources. And you probably have a really good view of how all of these different resource demands uh, interact and overlap with each other. And I attribute that to the fact that I started out in a pretty small school district where I was the guy really, and I was in charge of busing. Food services person reported to me. I had to do all the accounting. I had a few people in the office to support me in that role, but I got a taste of all aspects of school business in that smaller setting, which I've been able, I think, bring with me to bigger setting. And I think the experience I had in that smaller district really helped me as I got to Logan, uh, because I understood what all the pieces of the puzzle were. And really, it all works the same on a grander scale, but it all works the same. And then uh, I came to Ogden in 2014. And again, I've been able to just build on that experience that I had from my previous lives. Uh, hopefully to uh, make a difference for good here. Well, Zane, you have kind of a reputation as being a bit of a maverick in the district administrator space. You You seem to see things a little bit differently. What do you attribute that to? And how has that affected the way you see the business of education? You know, I've always taken it as a very serious part of what I do, the stewardship of managing the public funds and the public trust, and believe that in my role, I should be striving to squeeze every bit of outcome, if you will, out of the dollars we spend. I want to spend it wisely. I want to spend it efficiently. I want to spend it better so that I can make that dollar stretch. You know, we ultimately get more done with the money we spend. And it didn't, it didn't really matter what I was uh, dealing with when I had a problem. I was trying to look at it from an angle of how can I do this better and how can I do it with less help, perhaps. Maybe not everyone looks at things like that. It's easy, I think, to come to work and just take what comes across your table and get paper pushed and get the job done. It becomes more of a challenge if you're trying to look at this paper that's coming across your table and say, all right, why is this coming across my table? Does it have to? And how can I make this better? Well, thank you for that, Zane. And I think that the reason I consider you to be a maverick is just looking at the numbers. There are, I believe, 41 school districts in the state of Utah. And I believe I've heard that there are five that are self-funded. Now, school districts are very conservative, of course. But what do you think explains this fact that so many districts that on paper, at least, look like they should be self-funded, but they aren't? That's a little bit of a complicated question, and I'm liable to step on a few toes. Okay, well, do say whatever it is you're you're comfortable saying. So I think... The reason more are not self-funded is because too many of us have been led to believe, and I was for 25 years, 
that I was too small to be self-funded, that somehow you magically had to have at least a thousand employees on your health plan to justify being self-funded because of the risks associated with that. I, I first started exploring it probably around my 21st year was when I first went to Logan and we were part of a pool of other school districts managed by one of the carriers that's popular in Utah. And one of my frustrations was, you know, we would talk about ways to keep our claims down. We'd talk about all of these things, but the way things were set up, it wasn't really going to benefit me, except perhaps in re- the form of smaller premiums going forward. And because I was in a pool with other school districts, obviously it wasn't just my decision to make. It was a collective decision among you know the half a dozen or so school districts that were part of that particular pool. I couldn't get information about how my group was doing because of the rules that have been put in place by the carrier. And in some respects, I think those rules are put in place intentionally to keep the group from breaking up. They would make the argument that by being pulled with others, that it minimizes our risk and spreads that out. And when you have a bad year, that you're less apt to take the full brunt of that in your own premium increase because you got other groups that are maybe having a little better experience. And so I think the whole thing is set up such that there's not a lot of incentive to look outside the box, if you will, and to explore going on your own. A lot of school districts will have a broker that works for them. And these brokers are really good at establishing relationships, particularly with HR type people, in my opinion. And the very nature of a broker relationship with the school district in health insurance business, in my mind, is one huge conflict of interest. If my broker, and they are paid through overrides and commissions from the carriers based on premiums, that's how they're paid. There is an inherent conflict of interest in trying to do right by me to keep those premiums down. Now, they will argue that, no, that isn't how they work. But the reality is there is that inherent conflict of interest. They're all about trying to make more money. I get that. But I don't know how they can be looking to reduce my premium dollars paid or have a smaller and smaller increase of those premium dollars paid if their commissions were based on the premium dollars paid. You know, just yeah. yeah. So I've always had a problem with that. It wasn't actually until I came to Ogden that I ever worked with a broker for that very reason. I just refused to do it because I figured I'm smart enough. I can figure this out. And it's easy, I think. It's easier, perhaps, to not fight those battles, just to you know, roll with it, take your increases. We get our money from the legislature. I just have to use this much for insurance, and I'm not going to be worried about reducing what I'm spending on that insurance. Let's, let's start out with a, a question I think that people listening to this would obviously ask, which is, you have more than 50 people. So under the uh, Affordable Care Act, you are required to have insurance, which seems to suggest you would have to have a broker. To, to buy that insurance for you. How, how have you ad- addressed that? You don't have to do that. I think uh, I don't have a broker, but I do have a benefit advisor. So when I go out 
to look for that service, I was very specific in my request for proposal to specify that I was looking for someone to come to help me put the pieces of the puzzle together to move to self-funding. And even before I made that proposal, when I did my RFP, I specifically made them agree to forfeit all overrides and commissions and that they would work for me on a fee-for-service basis. So a lot of brokers are not paid directly from the owner. They are getting their pay directly from the carriers, which goes back to this conflict of interest I was telling you about. So most districts have no idea how much that broker is making off of their business. There are reports, I guess, that they have to provide if you ask them. Most don't. And the conversations I've had with some of my colleagues, you know, they, they like that they don't have to write a check to a broker. And somehow in their mind, that means they're not paying for that service. Well, that's hogwash. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're getting paid by carriers and you're paying higher premium premiums because of it. And so through an education process, one can learn that you don't need a broker to get business done in providing health insurance for your employees. It's nice to have an advisory that you can trust to kind of help you understand more how it works. It's with talking with advisors like that, that uh, you come to understand what are the pieces of the puzzle that make up this insurance program. And then you come to understand that you can put that puzzle together without a broker. And if you got the right players, they will help you manage your program because everyone wants to see you be successful. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, so many questions out of that too. So Zane, you have said you are willing to take this on yourself of putting this together with the help of an advisor. Has it been a lot more work for you? And if so, how have you dealt with that work? And if not, what, what has surprised you? It's been different work. Okay. You have to make it a priority for one thing. And it's important to understand how it works. So I just felt like I'm talking about 10% of my budget, which for Ogden School District, you're almost $10 million. If I can cut that by $1 million, I've saved a million dollars. And that's money I can put towards increasing teacher pay, which is always an issue. Okay, And so my goal is to try to, to get at that. And so I have taken the opportunity and time to attend uh, seminars, to talk to other uh, people that are in the benefit consulting business, whether they're brokers or otherwise, to, to just understand how the whole thing works. And it's really not rocket science. It really isn't. But you have to decide you want to learn about it. And then once you've learned about it, you've got to decide to do something about it. That's where the heavy work in my mind comes. Uh, I've known for 10 years that I wanted to move to a self-funding model. I wasn't able to get there until like I'm in my third year now. So, <laughs> And it, it all started with, okay, I have got to get out of these pools so I can control my destiny. And so I broke out of the pool and went on my own. There's a certain amount of risk involved with that, but it was essential to have my own experience because generally speaking, if you're in a pool and you want to go on your own, carriers want to know what your experience is. And if you can't provide them with that, then they're going to obviously ratchet up what they're going to be charging you for premiums to make sure that they've covered themselves in the event of things not going just right. So you have to make that decision. 
I had to get myself working with a benefit advisor that I could trust to support me in my goals. And I was fortunate to find someone a few years ago to, uh, that believed in what I was doing, that believed in self-funding. Uh, he works with several clients that have fewer than 50 employees that are self-funded. And here I've been told my whole career, you've got to have a thousand employees to make this work. Well, no, not necessarily. There are things that you can do to mitigate the risk of being on your own and being self-funded even when you're small to the point that it justifies itself and pays for itself. So obviously it takes more work from the standpoint of trying to understand how it works. And then once you understand how it works and you get the vision of what it is you want to do, then you've got to work with the establishment. I mean, Ogden School District years ago went self-funded and there were still people around here a few years ago that were around then. That didn't go so well. In my mind, there are reasons why that didn't go so well. And, you know, it just had to do with how the program was managed and who they had helping them at the time, and a few things like that. And so there was a big uh, pushback from a certain element of folks that weren't really convinced. Uh, obviously, they don't want to find themselves in a situation where they're going to have to spend more on insurance than they otherwise want to and forfeit salary because of that. And so um, it was a pretty, you know, it's not out of line for me to say we had some heated battles internally before we got where we are. And ultimately, I was able to gain the trust of the seven people that I needed the most to make this work. And that was my board of education. I remember that conversation. And I basically told them, Quinn, I said, I'm so convinced that this is the right thing for me to do for the district, that if it does not work, I'll resign. I put it that bluntly. Wow. And that's really taking, that's really taking on responsibility for your employee medical benefits. I mean, that's the the theme of this podcast is you can take control of your employee medical benefits. And here you're saying that you, you personally were going to take control of your employee medical benefits. In addition to your personal guarantee, which I think everybody takes pretty seriously. What other things did you have to say or do in order to get the powers that be to go along with your plan? I I obviously, I had to have the vision in place and I had to articulate that vision. I had to educate my board a little bit on how insurance works. You know, you've got your claims. That's what's driving the bus. If you want to save money in health insurance, you've got to tackle the claims. Everything else is minimal. You know, they make up 80% of the cost or more. Then, you know, you got your third-party administrator, those guys that you need to pay the bills, track the coverage, and all of that other stuff. And then you, you got stop-loss insurance that you need to worry about. That's where you get your protections on individual claims and in the aggregate. And all of those pieces, there aren't that many. They're just, you know, three or four or five, depending on what you're doing. But everyone needs to understand that. So I spent time educating my board of where we were, where I wanted to go, what it would take to get where we want to go. 
And, and then I was able to show them out of the chute reduced premiums because as soon as you make that decision, I, I was able to bring forth real savings. If you're doing it self-funded, you're not paying for the profit margin for the insurance carrier that they have built into their program. And if you're worth a regular carrier doing fully funded insurance, what benefit do you really get out of having smaller claims? Those carriers are banking on you having smaller claims and the smaller those claims, the bigger their profit margin. Why should they get that? I want that to save me money. And so uh, the the efforts we make to proactively uh, cut back on claims actually inure to the benefit of the school district. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point. But Zane, let's come back to a question that I think people will want to know, which is you said you put out an RFP and said, I don't want to have a broker who is making commissions. I want to pay. I want to be the customer, not the insurance company. How did you find somebody to take that deal? Well, not everyone did. But I just threw it out there on the street. I actually had had a few proposals that came in like that. A lot of the people in that business, they they don't know any other model themselves. And so you throw something like that out on the street and you get this traditional response to an RFP. And and I remember having a conversation with one of them. I mean, I usually sit down with them first and I talk them through my vision and what it is I wanted to do. So I, I had conversations with four or five different brokers uh, to explain what I was doing and what I wanted to do. It's interesting. A lot of them will say, you're headed right down the right path. This is where we need to be going. But at the end of the day, not very many of them actually came to the table with the kind of a proposal that was needed. You know, and, and some of them were sorely disappointed, you know. I mean, I remember telling one guy I'd worked with for, you know, on and off for several years, he'd been trying to get my business and I'd been explaining my vision and everything else. And then when it came down to it, he turned in a response to that RFP that was clear out in left field. It's like, did you understand any of these conversations we've been having? And, and uh, so there aren't that many that like to play that way. There's a reason for that. They make a lot more money under the other model. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of almost tragic because I've heard a number of brokers say this thing that you've said, I'm going to represent you. I represent my client's best interests. But at the end of the day, they would have to fight so hard against the system that has been created for them to function in. Yeah. Yeah. All the monetary incentives are in the wrong place. So let's go back to the question. You did actually find a few people who were willing to take that offer to forego their, their normal revenue stream, their overrides and their commissions, and to allow you to pay them and for you to be their customer. How did that happen? Well, I mean, first by creating the expectation through the RFP process. And then once we had those proposals for the ones that met the criteria, you know, we would interview them and talk to them and make sure that they were on the same page and ultimately made the choice to go with the one that would be the best fit for me. And was there a clear winner or did you have a variety of people that you could have chosen and and had an acceptable solution? I guess the question I'm getting at here is how hard is this? to find a broker who's willing to go along with your vision? Uh, you will not get inundated with proposals <laughs> of people anxious to do this. I think I may have had three. And the way they were priced, it was obvious that they were so far out of their comfort zone and putting together a proposal like this. 
it just it didn't work for me the choice was fairly obvious what i wanted to do based on my interviews and conversations so i think once you go through that process you got people willing to play the game that you want to play not their own a choice becomes fairly obvious hey good to know so you mentioned that you delivered results right away uh, this is important, obviously, to keep your credibility and to keep your promises. So what were some of those results that you saw? Right out of the shoot, we saved a bunch of money in premium costs. And then, you know, I, it, it was a transition for me. So first thing I wanted to do, I needed to break out of the network that I had. And, and so for me, uh, I made a jump to the University of Utah Health Plan from Educators Mutual and I did that for a couple of reasons, but primary one is U of U was pretty aggressive in getting into the market and they came in and offered me a premium reduction out of the shoot of like 9%. And so figure it out. It was about, it, you know, almost $900,000 in savings, right? Like, but that was still a fully funded plan, but they knew coming into the conversation that my plan ultimately was to move to a self-funded plan. And I wanted to network with that provide me maybe what in my own mind was better flexibility and managing the plan, if you will. And once I made the decision, well, I went to the U of U and I got into the different networks that I wanted to be in because they offered better discounts. So again, we're trying to cut claims costs as much as possible. And then the next year we made the move to go self-funded and the savings out of the chute was, I didn't have an increase that year. I was able to make that move, keep my premiums the same and, and it worked. So a zero increase in my mind is like saving money. <laughs> if, if the trend is four or 8% or whatever it happens to be, and if you can get by with less than trend, you're saving money. And, and I've been able to do that. Every year. Uh, and by going self-funded with my own plan, I've been able to do other things like bring on Epic Surgical Center as a partner. And because I had the right third-party administrator in place, they were able to work with me on making sure that if they go to Epic, it's not out of the plan network. It actually will save employees money. If you do this, there's monetary incentive for doing that kind of thing. Uh, and I can bring in, I've just got more flexibility to tailor my program in such a way that I can really get at the cost of claims. If I can get something done for 60% of normal cost or less, that's what's going to save me money in the long run. So you were able to right off the bat save $900,000 and then the savings compound every year that you don't yeah, have. Right. Yeah. So those are some pretty impressive numbers. Uh, how did the employees take moving? You're moving to self-funded. Did they even know it happened? They knew because we told them, but from boots on the ground perspective, if you're an employee, they didn't know the difference. Has there been any response? I know you've got a stakeholder committee, a benefits committee made up of teachers and staff members. What have they had to say about this? I think they've liked it. I mean, one of the things we've been able to do is um, our third-party administrator has been much more responsive to questions uh, that employees may have about their benefits, about coverage, you know, prescriptions and things like that. They're finding that that, that outfit that's sole responsibility is to take care of my employees uh, is more responsive than the big carrier has been. So they like that. Uh, we present data to that benefit committee and they can see what difference it's making because we can point to it and say, here's what these, here's what our experience was. 
here's what it's looking like this year. And so far, uh, it's been better, okay? What have you been able to do with these $900,000 a year or more savings? How have you redeployed those resources? Uh, we were able to give teachers a pay raise, a good pay raise. Uh, we announced that, you know, our teachers are some of the highest paid in the state. Our beginning teacher salary is one of the highest in the state. Not the, but because you got the park cities of the world and wars that are going on with salaries among some of the bigger districts. But I think it's evidenced by that. We have lower than average pupil-teacher ratios. So. Well, what advice would you give to those people who are in your role, whether in K-12 through education or in a traditional business, who are facing a similar decision about how do I tackle my employee medical benefit? Do you have any words of advice for them? If they really want to tackle it, they need to get educated about how it works. They really need to understand it. Don't take my word. Don't take anybody else's word. Find out how it works. Find out what the mechanics are. Find out what pieces of the puzzle you need to have in place, which ones are essential, which ones don't you need. And once you understand that, you've gotten over the biggest, highest hurdle in my mind. Most don't want to go down that road because they don't want to have to worry about it. I mean, you know, I pay my premiums. They handle my questions. I don't have to worry about it. And I get that. I mean, we have a lot on our plates as business administrators and school districts. And, and, and this is one big chunk of meat on your plate, if you want to put it there. A lot of people just soon leave it off their plate and, and live with the consequences of whatever happens. I just don't operate that way. Uh, how did you become educated? And are there some resources that you can suggest people use to get educated? The ones I used were primarily I was educated by by brokers that would come in and talk to me and I would talk to them about what my vision is and they would tend to bring people into the conversation that knew a little bit more about it than they did. Uh, and I can point to two or three different things that have happened in the last, I don't know, 10 years that, that really clicked a switch in my brain that you can do this and you can make this happen. I went to a seminar in Logan one time I was invited to by a broker who had been trying to get my business, but he invited me to a seminar of some guys in Houston, and they got into the weeds with this claim stuff and how it works, and, and I heard terms in that conversation that I'd never heard before, you know, and it just, I found it fascinating, I found it intriguing, I found it frustrating at the same time, because, you know, we're all basically doing the same thing, and there are a few people in this process making a whole lot of money based on our ignorance, the way I say it. <laughs> <laughs> And our, either our inability or refusal to tackle it. And so, you know, you can go online and find out that kind of stuff. But my, my education primarily happened through conversations with people who are in the business. And I don't turn down many offers even now to attend seminars where they talk about this stuff. Sometimes I come out of those seminars shaking my head thinking, you know, it's just the same old stuff. Well, it sounds like your recipe is just be curious. And ask be, questions. Be curious, be courageous, take the bull by the horns, and own it, and own it. Be willing to own it. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Zane. Thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you for being curious 
as a, a taxpayer in the state of Utah and as an alumnus of the uh, Ogden City School District, I appreciate what you're doing to help uh, raise teacher pay, provide better services for students and teachers there, and take better care of the public dollars. So thank you so much. Thanks, Quinn. It's been a pleasure. All right. Join us again in two weeks. We'll, we'll have another conversation with somebody who is taking the bull by the horns, as Zane says, and dealing with their employee medical benefit costs. And until next time, viva la revolucion.